let me ask you a question. In life, we can hear stories of people who missed opportunities. Things like failing to buy land in the Orlando, Florida area back in the 1960s when Walt Disney bought up swampland and made it into what is now the Walt Disney World Resort, or failing to invest in a small little company that looked like a piece of fruit with a bite out of it back in the 80s and 90s called Apple, or more recently, uh, maybe failing to buy Amazon stock or, uh, or Bitcoin, if you even know what in the world that is, uh, and we miss these opportunities, and history is replete with missed opportunities. My question for you is, what is the greatest opportunity in life you could possibly miss? I believe the greatest opportunity you could ever possibly miss is failing to investigate the Christian faith for yourself. Not based on what anyone else has told you, not based on what you think you remember when you were growing up in church, not based on some blog post that someone wrote sometime and and you go, well, there's it. That's, that determines everything. I mean, digging in and asking questions for yourself. The reason I believe it's the greatest missed opportunity if you don't take advantage of it is because if there is a God, and if this God has revealed himself and the truth about himself through the Bible, and if this God has promised to meet the greatest and deepest needs of the human heart through the person of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, and if this God says now, not only that, but there really is, when you die, there is an eternity. There is a life after this life. And whether you spend that eternity in God's presence in heaven or eternally separated from God is based on how you respond to this person, Jesus Christ. If that is true, and that's what the Christian faith teaches, if that's true and you fail to investigate it, for yourself, it can be the greatest missed opportunity in your life because your eternity is impacted by it. So my question for you is, have you investigated it for yourself? You say, yeah, I have. That's why I'm here. No, I haven't. That's why I'm here. Wonderful. But have you investigated it for yourself? You say, I have, and I've become a Christian. Great. Have you helped anyone else investigate it? Because some people would say, this series isn't really helping me. I'm already a Christian. <laughs> Do you know any non-Christians? Do you know anybody that this might help? So have you investigated it for yourself? Have you helped others to investigate it? Because if the Christian faith is true, no amount of scrutiny, no amount of analyzing, no amount of examining is going to make it crumble. There are people who will tell you, and it's astounding to me that people still have this um, idea in their minds that somehow, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't think. That somehow, Christianity and intellect are diametrically opposed. That if, if you're going to be a believer, then, then you have to shut off your brain, you have to dismiss the whole idea of thinking that Christianity is for the simple-minded, the brainwashed, the uneducated. But I'm here to tell you, look at it, analyze it, study it, dig into it, bring your doubts, bring your questions, bring your concerns. There are people who were raised in the church and made to believe that somehow engaging intellectually and asking those questions threatens their faith. Like, if I 
If I have doubts, if I have concerns, if I point out some things, it's gonna erode my faith. Not if you come at it honestly, sincerely, and say, I really wanna understand. I really want to learn. Because this is what Jesus said about himself. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the truth. In other words, there is no inherent conflict between faith and science, faith and academia, faith and understanding and and intellect and reason. There is no conflict between those things because if Jesus is the truth, then all truth is God's truth. So what that means is this. There is not, there's no such thing as biblical truth versus scientific truth. All truth is God's truth. Wherever you find truth, if Jesus is the truth, wherever you find truth, that points to God. So scientific discoveries, what do they do? They're not, they're revealing to us what God has done, how he's moved. They're supposed to be congruent with the Christian faith, not feeling like somehow they're at war with the Christian faith. But so many of us are fearful and and, and timid when it comes to looking at the science, thinking that it's going to undermine our faith. Listen, if our faith as Christians can be toppled by a scientific discovery, give up your faith now. (laughs) What faith are you holding on to? I mean, let's be honest. If one scientific breakthrough proves all Christianity false, then you're wasting your time. But if scientific discoveries point to the idea of God, the reality of God, then it strengthens our faith. So in this series, we've looked at the whole idea that somehow there's this tension between science and Christianity, and we found there's really not. We started by looking at the creation of the universe, and we said the the latest and greatest scientific discoveries actually point to the idea of a God. We looked at uh, the the beginning and and the process of life here on earth and the Genesis accounts found in the Bible, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, and what science talks about. And we realize they're very similar. We also talked about the reliability of the Bible, that it's historically reliable. We talked about last week, Jesus. Is, Is Jesus a real person? Did he really exist? Did he do some of the things that is claimed about him, who it says he was? We've learned all those things. Now, this morning, we're going to conclude this series by talking about the idea of faith, that our faith, being a person of faith and being a person of intellect, science, reason, understanding, are they in conflict? Is faith really just for the uninformed? Because that's what we're led to believe. If you have faith, you're somehow uninformed. But again, what we've learned is science seems to, if we look at it honestly, point to the Bible. It points to the things of God. So how do we learn this? How do we dive into this? Part of it is found in this verse, uh, these verses in Psalms. And I love this passage. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The law of the Lord is perfect. The commands of the Lord are are radiant. They give light to the eyes. In other words, what it's telling us is if you look at creation, you will see the truth of what God has done. If you look into the Bible, 
you'll see the truth of the God who's done it. They, they complement each other. In other words, God has given us two ways to find truth, to reveal himself. He reveals himself through his creation and he reveals himself through his word. God is revealed through his work and through his word, through his work and through his word. So when people say, all I need is faith, great. But sometimes that faith doesn't flow initially out of the word of God. It flows through understanding who God is in the natural world. And from there, it becomes rooted in the word of God. For other people, it starts in the word of God. Wonderful. But at some point, don't be scared to look at the created order. If God created it, it's going to reveal him. So why is there this seeming tension between faith and science? Where does that come from? If they're not in conflict, if there's no inherent conflict there, why does there seem to be conflict between faith and science, intellect, or, or yeah, faith and science, intellect and faith, understanding and Christianity? Why is there this tension? The reason is not because you can't be a Christian and think. The reason is there's a philosophy that has taken root in much of science and academia today. And it's a philosophy that um, you may have heard, you may not have, but it's called this. It's called reductive naturalism. Now, it's very difficult to find a succinct definition of reductive naturalism, but here's my best way to summarize it. Reductive naturalism, it states this, only the natural world exists. Naturalism. Now, what do we mean by natural world? That which you can taste, see, touch, analyze, empirically study, only the natural world exists, and everything is reducible to the simplest verifiable data. Everything, including morals. Why, why do we hold to some moral standard? There is something somewhere in the natural world that compels us to do that. It's not a God. See, reductive naturalism say the only thing that's real is the natural world. Therefore, anything supernatural, the idea of God, the idea of a realm beyond this world is off the table. It can't be. The only thing that's real is nature. The only thing that's real is the natural world. So the, the idea behind it is that what you can verify is true. It's terrible science. If the mantra is follow the science, then bad science starts with a presupposition that says where the science leads, I won't go. There's some things that are off the table. If the science leads here, I refuse to go there because I've already predetermined, I have this presupposition that this isn't possible. So I won't follow where the science leads. It's actually created a religion. Nobody goes to this church, but it's a religion. It's called scientism. It's the deification, the exaltation of science above everything. Science becomes God. So it's no longer science versus faith. It's scientism. Scientism isn't trying to prove that God does or does not exist. Scientism says the test tube is God. And that's all there is. So that's where this seeming tension comes from. But if we don't start with a presupposition as believers that says this is how it has to end, if we say, listen, I'm struggling, I have questions, I want to understand, science has discovered this and said that, and, and if God created this, then I don't want to dismiss that. I want to say, how do these two come together? 
We can engage our minds, we can engage our intellect, we can engage our understanding, and what we'll find is a God who meets us there. God invites us to come and talk with him, reason with him. He even invites us to argue with him. I know that sounds horrible, and I don't mean like argue, like get in God's face and say you're wrong, but say, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. Because we're created in God's image. And God is a, 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 he has understanding, he has reason. This is what it says in Isaiah. Come now, the Lord says, let us reason together. God says to you and to me, come on, let's just sit down and talk. Let's discuss the issue. Let's, let's hash this out. You've got questions, that's fine. I'm not bothered by your questions. I'm like God. So let's talk. Now, at some point, you do have to get to a point where all your questions, all your concerns, all your examinations, all those things, and you have to settle something at some point, what will I believe? But God's not mad because you have questions. He's fine with it. We see this played out beautifully in Jesus' interaction with this man named Thomas. Now, you may be familiar with the story. Uh, Thomas was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his 12 disciples. Jesus had a lot of followers, but he had the, the 12 that he, he just lived life with for three years. And we've come to know Thomas is doubting Thomas. We kind of give him a bad rap. Doubting Thomas. He didn't, he didn't believe. He was a doubter. And we, and we put his bad spin on it. Jesus didn't put a bad spin on it at all. Jesus understood how Thomas was wired. He understands how you're wired. He understood that Thomas had questions. And he was fine with Thomas asking some questions. So let me give you the background. Here it is. Thomas has followed Jesus for three years. After three years, Jesus is uh, crucified. He's killed, put to death. It's what we think about on Good Friday coming up. And he's laid in a tomb. A stone is rolled in front of him. Three days later, people say Jesus rose from the dead and some people see him. Some people said they saw him. They're running around saying Jesus is alive, and Peter, and Peter and James and John are telling everyone, we've seen him, we've seen the risen Lord. But Thomas says, I, I haven't seen. You know what I saw? I saw him beaten. I saw him tortured. I saw him hanging on a cross. I saw him die. I saw them take his body and lay it in a tomb, and they rolled a rock in front of it, and as a result, it rocked his world. He was, he was shaken. People say, we've seen him. He says, I don't know what you've seen, but I know what I've seen. I've seen a lifeless, limp cor uh, corpse that was laying in a tomb. That's what I've seen. And that's all I've ever seen. Listen, if that's what you saw, that's what I saw, that's about what we would believe. And so, this is what Thomas says, because Jesus showed up. He met with all these people, but Thomas wasn't there. And this is what it says in John. Thomas said, it's hard to believe. I will have to see the nail holes in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. Only then will I believe it. And I don't think he's a whole lot different than you and me. Believe in God. Well, Believe that God created everything, but science says this. It's hard for me to believe that. It's hard for me to grasp that. Okay, look into it. Examine it. Press in. It's fine. It's not a problem. Look into these things. So what happens? Thomas says, I'm having a hard time believing this. And what do we see happens? It says this. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time, Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. What that's telling us, and I hope you don't miss this. There's a subtle little point, but it's so pivotal. It's easy to overlook, but it's so important, right? It's as if Jesus showed up just for Thomas. Even, even in recording this encounter, it says Jesus showed up again and Thomas was there. And Jesus shows up and they're terrified because anybody who's walking through locked doors might scare the uh, fire out of you. And um, so he says, calm down, it's all right, it's me. And then what does he do immediately? He turns and says, now, Thomas, let's talk. Let's talk. It's as if this whole encounter is just for Thomas's sake. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, I can't believe you have questions. How dare you doubt? What's the matter with you? Where's your faith? Just believe. No, he doesn't say that at all. It's as if he's saying, Thomas, for three years, for three years, we walked together. For three years, I told you who I was. For three years, you followed me and you believed. But I understand you've got some questions. So let's press in. Let's examine. Look at it. Touch, taste, feel, verify. Whatever you need to do. But don't stop believing. You believed who I was. Now believe that it's all true. Believe even in my resurrection. Believe that I am who I said I am, that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And if I'm the life, even if they take my life from me, even if I lay my life down, even if I surrender my life, I can take my life back up again. So why is it so hard to believe that I'm alive? And from that moment on, Thomas' faith never wavered. He followed to the point of a martyr's death put to death for his faith. Some church history, it's not in the Bible, say while he was being put to death, he cried out, this man was the way, the truth, and the life. He believed it at the core of who he was. So Jesus invites us, God invites us to bring our questions, press in. That doesn't bother him at all. And what you're going to find is if you engage with your intellect, with your mind, with your understanding, if you look at it honestly, I promise you, if you look at it honestly, not unbiasedly, not with a presupposition, if you look at it unbiasedly, it will lead you to God. And then you'll have to make a choice, just like Thomas did. Will I believe or will I not? Now, I know that brings up some questions like, okay, Fine, I can bring my doubts, I can bring my concerns, I can reason with God, I can talk with God, I can examine those things, that's wonderful. But I've done a little bit of that. And there's some things in the Bible that, hmm, I just have a hard time believing. Like, what about all the things that Christianity wants me to believe that are supernatural, that seem to be against reason? What about all those things? What about all the things that are against reason? You know, like miracles and supernatural events. That, I can explore that all I want, but it doesn't make sense to me. You know, things like um, the parting of the Red Sea, feeding thousands with a few loaves and fish, the sun 
standing still in the sky for an hour. Um, you know, people with superhuman strength and being raised from the dead and miracles and walking on water. Listen, you tell me that God wants me to engage in reason and intellect. Fine, I'll do that. But that defies reason and intellect. And you're right. It does. It absolutely does. Now, you have a choice. You could um, just remove all the supernatural and miraculous things from the Bible. That's what Thomas Jefferson tried to do. Thomas Jefferson said, we are so enlightened, we are so informed, we are so um, advanced now that we no longer need to believe those fairy tales. But the teachings, the values, the principles that are espoused by Jesus are still worthy of consideration. So we're just going to pretend that the supernatural parts aren't there. You can do that. The problem is you're left with a lot of blanks, a whole lot of blanks. So what do you do with the miracles? What do you do with the supernatural? Listen to me. I understand. I understand. I understand that a supernatural act defies the laws of physics, defies scientific principles, defies reason that we, how we understand things. It does those things. But the reason they do those things is because they're miracles. Miracles are not, are not, are not, are not, are not scientifically possible. That's what makes them miracles. I, I, listen, I know we use the term in lots of different ways, the miracle of a sunrise, the miracle of a child's birth. Those aren't miracles in the proper sense. They're wonderful. They're inspiring. They, they stir something in us. They're not miracles the way a miracle in the supernatural way is a miracle. A miracle by definition uh, at a moment uh, violates, suspends, goes beyond the scientific laws and principles. Now, here's the thing. If you're a reductive naturalist, you have a huge problem with miracles. You have a huge problem with the supernatural. But if you're a theist... If you're open to the idea of God, that there's a God running around out there somewhere, that there's someone who's over and above the, the natural order, a God who outside of space and time created everything from nothing, who himself is over the laws of science. The laws of science aren't over him. Therefore, at any moment, that God can step in and suspend this, the scientific laws at a miraculous moment. I don't have a problem with that but it does require some point of faith. So faith is required, absolutely, 100%. But don't say there can't be a God because there's supernatural, or the, the, the Christianity can't be rule, uh, true because there's supernatural, miraculous events in the Bible. That's starting with the presupposition. There is no God. If there is no God, then you're right. The supernatural and the miraculous are a problem. But if you don't start with that presupposition, it can lead you to God. So you have to, you have to wrestle with these things. Engage your mind. Engage your understanding. It doesn't bother God at all. So I want to end with this thought. And it's, it's kind of the whole idea that um, faith and science need each other. What I mean by that is if we reduce life to science to academia, to understanding, 
and we try and remove God from the equation, we always find ourselves wanting. Reductive naturalism has proved insufficient to the human condition. Because if we say there is no God, we don't want God, we're going to push God out of the equation, we're left so very, very, very alone. We're left with all kind of questions and doubts about why we're here, purpose, meaning, the meaning of life, the meaning of our lives. But it is, it is a constant war in our world. Because when I, and I'm going to use the term world, but when I say world, I just mean uh, our natural uh, impulse as human beings. The world wants to live free from God. But, they, but the result is lifelessness. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve said, we want to live free from God. And as a result, they went from being alive to being dead. Not physically dead, but lifeless. God said, on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Your life will never be the same. And in our day and age, with so many people saying, we don't need God, we've moved past God, we've outgrown God, outgrown the need for God, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead, All right? It's a famous saying, God is dead. You know the rest of it? It says, God is dead, and we are the murderers of him. We're the murderers of him. What, what is left for us? Lifelessness, right? We live in a day and age where we've got everything. We've got more technological advances. We've got more psychological understanding. We've got more... Uh, Thrills, we've got more ways to, to produce self-care and all those things, and yet the amount of uh, dysfunction in our lives is growing exponentially. We're not full of life and joy and happiness. I don't care what you put on social. We are full of death because we've said we can do this without God. Look how happy I am. But we're not happy. Look how great my life is, but it's not so great. Because we have in us a desire to connect with something bigger than us. Listen, you know this. I know this. We all know it. There is something. Intrinsically, we know this. I don't care who you are. There's something outside of the five senses. We all know that. That there's something beyond what we can taste, see, smell, examine, look at, touch. There's something out there. What it is, is God. So it leaves us with one last question as we wrap up this whole series, and it's this. Then why, why, why doesn't God do more to reveal himself? I mean, why doesn't God just make it uh, just so blatantly clear that there'd be no reason to doubt? I mean, why doesn't God just slap us all in the face and say, it's me, hello, believe, believe? believe. Some of us would say he has. Through the Bible, through creation, all the things we've talked about, he has made himself abundantly clear. But I think what people are asking is, why doesn't he make it clear? Why doesn't he leave no sliver of doubt? Why doesn't he just write it in the sky? And then everyone will believe. Well, the answer, believe it or not, is found at the conclusion of the encounter that Jesus had with Thomas. And here's what Jesus said to Thomas. Jesus told him, you have believed because you have seen me. But blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe anyway. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, 
I want you to engage with me, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to be in a relationship with me. See, God can make himself so apparent and, and show himself in such a way that everyone would believe. We'd be reduced to trembling, uh, frightened people on our knees. And we'd say, we all believe. And one day that's gonna happen when Jesus returns, when God sets all things right, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But it's not an entered into freely relationship. At that point, God shows up and we're all scared witless. We're all going, oh my gosh. But at the moment right now, God says, I want a personal relationship with you. If I reveal myself and force you to believe you're not entering into a relationship, you are accepting what you have no choice. But God is a person and he is personal. And he wants us to engage with him at that level, to believe in our hearts, to engage our minds, to have our souls and our spirits come alive and to live for him. That's what God wants for you and for me. The headline of Christianity is not God's hiding somewhere. And maybe if you look hard enough, you'll find him. The headline of the Christian faith is that God has made himself visible. That Jesus came, God in the flesh, and showed up. And as a result, we can enter into a relationship with him. Isaiah says it like this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. So when it comes to engaging your intellect, engaging your mind, studying things, don't start with the idea that there can't be a God. Start with the idea that if there is a God, if there is a God, I hope he's made himself knowable. I hope he's made himself findable. I hope I can engage with him because what kind of a God says, come and find me, but I'm hiding. That's what a toddler does. But our God is not a toddler. Our God says, I'm here. Just look, just look. I can be found. I've come near. In other words, God is near and God can be found. So I'm going to ask if you'd stand to your feet. I don't know where you are with your walk with the Lord. I don't know where you are in a relationship with God. But there's two things I want to focus on in this next few moments in a time of prayer and as we come into a time of worship. First of all, it starts with saying, God, I want to be in a relationship with you. If you've never done that, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, if you've never said, I want to live for you and not for myself, I want to put others before myself, I want to be someone whose life isn't just all about me and what I can get, but I want it to be about investing in others and investing in eternity. That's what it starts with. It says, Jesus came, God is near. Jesus came, God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. But as we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Easter, three days later, he rose from the dead victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And that means we can too. He took on him our sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That God looks at us and he doesn't see the mistakes we've made. He sees the holiness of Jesus. And all you have to do is say, God, I've messed up. I've made mistakes and I don't want to live like that anymore. And God will say, I'll make a deal with you. I'll take your life and I'll give you a new life. I'll give you a new life in Christ. All you have to do is ask. 
So if you've never accepted Christ as your savior, that's where it starts. So I'm gonna ask if everyone would close their eyes, bow their heads. If you have never made a commitment, or maybe you have and it was a long, long time ago and you've wandered away and you wanna come back, you wanna start that new life with Christ for the first time or you wanna start over again because you know you've wandered. I don't mean you made a mistake this last week. I mean you've wandered for months, years, decades. If that's you, right where you are, just raise your hand. If you're online, click the button that says, I want to give my life to Christ. Now I want to lead you in a prayer. If everyone would pray this prayer after me, it's not the words that are magical. The words matter, but it's the heart that you mean this. You're sincere. If you're sincere and you mean this, you're entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So just say these words after me. Heavenly Father, I come to you now and I ask you to forgive me. I've made mistakes. I've hurt people. I've lived for myself and I'm so sorry. I can't fix it. I can't change it. But you can forgive me. So I take everything I've done and give it to you. I lay my life down and receive new life in Christ. Forgive me. Give me freedom. Give me joy. Fill me with uh, a lightness of heart. Help me to live for you, to tell others about you. And God, help me to follow you my whole life. That when I leave this world, and I stand before you, I would hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to God's family. After our service, please come let someone pray with you and for you, help you take your next steps with Christ. If you're joining us online and you prayed that prayer and you push that button, please click the button that says connect with us. We want to follow up with you. You don't live and walk the Christian faith alone. You do it with others. Now, for the rest of us, maybe for you, it's not so much that you've not made that decision. You're following Christ. But you've got questions. You've got doubts. You feel like God is not near. You feel like God is far, far away. You show up at church, you pray, but every day at home, it's a struggle and a fight at work. It's a struggle and a fight trying to believe. It's not that God is far away and you have to keep searching for him. It's that you have kind of drifted. But here's the thing, God is near and God can be found. God can be found because God is near. God says, I want to be close with you again. All you have to do is say, God, I'm, uh, I want that. I want that closeness. I want that nearness. I want that intimate relationship with you that seems to have grown cold. And God says, great. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. So we're going to sing a song, and it's called Run to the Father. Run to the Father. Run to the Father. And if you know right now you're feeling like you're somehow distant from God, run to the Father. So again, I'm going to ask if everyone would close your eyes and bow your heads. If that's you, this is between you and God. So please just keep your eyes closed, your head bowed.
But if that's you and you would say, I, I feel distant, it's a fight, it's a struggle, I'm full of doubts, I'm full of questions, I'm full of just things I'm wrestling with. Everything seems like a fight. Everything seems like a battle. Even when I come to church, it's, it just feels like I'm going through the motions. Oh, God says, I've set you up. I brought you here right now for this moment. And I've been waiting, I've been waiting, I've been waiting. And if you will simply say, I'm running to you, I'm running to you, I'm coming back to you. God is near and God can be found. So if that's you, just have the courage to slip your hand up. Just raise your hand and say, I want that close, intimate relationship with God. I want it again. I want it to come back alive. I'm tired of everything being a fight and a struggle. I want that because when you get close with God, he brings joy. He brings life. He brings a sense of settledness and peace. God, I'm praying right now that as we spend these next moments with you, God, would we run into your presence? Would we come close to you because you've come close to us? Would we find you because you left the 99 and you came and found us? Because God, you are near and you can be found. So here's what I'm going to ask as we sing this song. If that's you, if you'd say, I want that closeness with God, there's going to be prayer teams up here, but I encourage you, it's, it's symbolic. There's nothing holy about being up here. But if the idea is I want to come to God, I want to step closer to God, then sometimes what we do represents what's inside of us. So step out from where you are and step forward and come forward. Let someone pray with you and be in God's presence and let him move in your life. Let's worship God together.